Paul and Silas arrested for releasing a slave girl from demonic possession. Now, that's not what they were charged with, but that was the reason for their arrest. We also discussed in detail the question raised by the statement that Paul was greatly annoyed by the situation. The general assumption being that he was annoyed by the girls' continual following after them and crying out that they were bondservants of the Most High God and were proclaiming the way, or actually a way, of salvation. Now, I pointed out that the word translated greatly annoyed was only used a couple of times in the New Testament and is better translated troubled, as I also mentioned the NIV does. I then suggested that Paul was troubled by her demonic condition. And that's why he cast the demons out. When he became aware of her condition, he acted. But he wasn't simply annoyed or troubled by her presence. Well, I couldn't believe it, but just this week I discovered that according to a sermon recently preached by Catherine Jeffers Shorey, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, I really misunderstood the text. While commenting on this account, she declared, Paul is annoyed at the slave girl who keeps pursuing him, telling the world that he and his companions are slaves of God. She is quite right. She's telling the same truth Paul and others claim for themselves. But Paul is annoyed, perhaps, for being put in his place. And he responds by depriving her of the gift of spiritual awareness. Paul can't abide something he won't see as beautiful and holy. So he tries to destroy it. It gets him thrown into prison. That's pretty much where he has put himself by his own refusal to recognize that she too shares in God's nature just as much as he does, maybe more so. Well, I will let you decide who has a better understanding of this account. But whatever one may try to read into this text... One thing is abundantly clear. Paul was not charged with the crime of casting out a demon. He was charged with proclaiming customs not lawful for Romans to accept or observe and for throwing the city into confusion. The truth of the matter is that Paul was dragged before the authorities by men who had lost their source of income once the slave girl lost her power foretell the future. It was simply an early case of Christianity becoming a threat to vested interests, to pockets and profits, one that resulted in Paul and Silas finding themselves imprisoned in Philippi. We pick up our study in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, 
they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. The men who were getting rich off the slave girl, preying on people's fears about the future, were masters at mass manipulation, something that Ann Coulter has interestingly labeled as demonic in her book entitled Demonic. Well, be that as it may, these men were able to stir the crowds into such a frenzy that even the magistrates overreacted. They jumped into the melee themselves and personally tore the robes off Paul and Silas, ordering them to be beaten with rods. Now, the rods weren't switches off an apple tree. They were more like broomsticks. And they were always available because lictors or rod bearers were always by the side of magistrates. The rods were actually carried in a bundle that included an axe, just in case the penalty was even more severe, indicating that Roman magistrates had the right to inflict corporal or capital punishment. And the bundle, or fasces, later became the emblem of the fascist party under Mussolini. Well, these infamous rods were used on the backs of Paul and Silas. And lictors, from whom men got their licks, weren't limited to 40 strokes, as were the Jews. They could beat someone until the magistrate told them to stop. And Luke records that they were inflicted with many blows. When the beating was stopped, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them securely. Being no doubt a retired soldier, he took the orders to heart and had Paul and Silas thrown into the inner prison, the innermost dark, dank dungeon in the whole prison system, and had their feet fastened in stocks. Now, these Stocks were in themselves instruments of torture designed to keep the prisoners' legs stretched so far apart they couldn't sit, lay, or stand without pain. And that's where Paul and Silas found themselves for doing good to a slave girl. So how'd they respond to the predicament? How would you respond? Would you think, what's going on here? What happened? Where, where did God go? I surely don't deserve this. Well, that's not how Paul and Silas responded. At midnight, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now, if they had just been praying, we would assume they were praying to get out of jail, you know, for deliverance. But they were also singing hymns of praise, something we might not have expected. In their pain with bruised and bleeding backs in a cold, dark, smelly dungeon with their legs cramping in wooden stocks, they had a worship service. They were praising God, singing of His love and grace 
and salvation. You find that hard to believe? Well, so did the other prisoners. Luke notes that they were listening to them. Now, that has to be an understatement. They couldn't believe their ears. They expected groans and cursing and perhaps crying out to God, but certainly not prayers of thanksgiving and hymns of praise. It was quite a shock, I'm sure. But they were in for an even bigger shock, one that would actually register on the Richter scale. <laughs> Let's read on. <laughs> and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer, who had been roused out of his sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do? To be saved. Now, some are quick to point out that earthquakes are relatively common in this area and therefore try to downplay the miraculous. But even the skeptics have to admit that the timing and effects of the earthquake were miraculous. Suddenly, as they're praying and singing, and while the other prisoners are listening, the earth starts to shake, and it's a great earthquake. It didn't just shake the chandeliers, it shook the foundation of the prison house. But it didn't fall down. The doors just popped open, and everyone's chains fell off. Now, it is possible that the chains just came loose from the walls, and they fell out of the loose mortar joints. If it's too much miracle and makes you uncomfortable, you can picture it that way. The, the text allows it to be viewed that way. Or if the power of God doesn't surprise you, you can see shackles dropping off wrists and stocks breaking in two. Well, the jailer, when he was literally shaken out of his sleep, ran and discovered what happened. He assumed everyone had escaped, and he was preparing to kill himself. You see, the penalty for losing a prisoner was the prisoner's fate. That's not to suggest Paul and Silas were slated for execution, but some in the prison apparently were. So he drew his sword, ready to kill himself, when a voice cries out from the darkness, Do yourself no harm. It was Paul crying out from the darkest recesses of the prison, don't do it. We're all still here. No one had escaped. No one left when the doors were open. Now, apparently they had the opportunity. The jailer assumed they were all gone, but they were still there. No doubt in awe of what had happened and afraid to leave. The jailer called for a torch and went in and found Paul and Silas. Trembling with fear, he fell down at their feet. And Paul, no doubt, 
told him to get up. They weren't gods. And he wasn't to bow at their feet. So he got up and led them out of the jail. The Western text adds, stopping along the way to secure the other prisoners. (laughs) When they got out into the light, the jailer asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Now, contrary to the assertion of some, he's not asking how he could be saved from punishment for letting them go. He's asking a spiritual question. Apparently, the events had caused the jailer to examine his relationship to God. You know, if these guys weren't gods, they at least knew a God much better than he did. And he may have heard that they were proclaiming the way of salvation. The slave girl had certainly made that fact well known. If the God that Paul proclaimed could release men from prison, perhaps he could also release a man from the guilt of his sin. And the jailer certainly must have felt guilty in their presence, if for nothing else, for the way he had treated them. So he asked the most important question of all time, what must I do to be saved? Let's see their answer. Let's see how this man was released from sin. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You know, probably the most quoted answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is stated here. Believe in the Lord Jesus. In fact, this is often used as a proof text by those who teach that all you need to do is believe that there's no need to do anything else, least of all, baptism. After all, they point out, Paul didn't say, believe and be baptized. They do have to admit, however, that baptism is included in other places in Scripture that ask similar questions. On the day of Pentecost, when asked, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. And let each of you be baptized. And if you accept the authenticity of Mark 16, 9 through 20, Jesus himself said, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Still, some would insist that since the jailer wasn't told to be baptized, it must not be necessary. Well, J.W. McGarvey, a preacher, of another generation answered this by writing, those who draw the conclusion that salvation is by faith alone leave the jail too soon. (laughs) I love that. The invitation to believe is an invitation to respond to the gospel message. 
And the invitation was extended not to the jailer, but to his entire household. So Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the household. Apparently, again, as you mentioned last week, all were old enough to hear, understand, and believe. And it was imperative that they understood that they were to respond in faith to the gospel message. So Paul and Silas took time to teach them. They didn't just say, great, you want to be saved? Just repeat this little prayer after me. They taught them what to believe and how to respond. And then, maybe during a break in their teaching, the jailer tended to their wounds. He washed them. And perhaps it was while washing the dirt from their backs that Paul and Silas explained how the dirt in men's souls had to be washed away and explained baptism to the jailer household. When they heard it, they believed and were baptized that very night, perhaps in the well or a pool of water from which water had been drawn by the jailer to wash their backs. After their baptism, the jailer took them into his living quarters and set food before them, rejoicing greatly because he and his household had been released from their sentence. The story, however, doesn't end there. There's one more picture of release in Philippi yet to come, of release from dishonor, verses 35 through 40. Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Well, apparently, the, the great earthquake was, was isolated to a particular area. And it hadn't caused widespread damage because the magistrates hadn't bothered to check on anything. But when the day came, they sent policemen, the rod bearers, the lictors, with orders to release Paul and Silas. They obviously had no intention to execute them or to even keep them in prison. They just wanted to teach them a lesson, to scare them off, to send them out of town like, whipped dogs with their tails tucked between their legs. They assumed that Paul and Silas would get out of town in a hurry if they were released. But, and the jailer probably thought that was a good idea. He said, go in peace. Paul didn't see it that way. To sneak out of town after being publicly humiliated would be to leave in dishonor. Not that Paul was too proud to do so. He had to do it often. He was run out of many a town. 
He was even snuck out of town in a basket. So he wasn't above doing so if need be. But in this circumstance, Paul saw a way to leave town without dishonor, and he took it. He said, in effect, no thanks. They had us beaten in public without a trial. They threw us in prison, and now they want us to sneak off in shame. No way. After all, we are Roman citizens, and they can't treat us like that. He appealed to his rights as a Roman and told them they had to come and publicly apologize for the way they had treated them. Now, that certainly turned the tables on the situation. Now the magistrates were in trouble. To violate the rights of a Roman citizen was a grievous offense. So they came and appealed for them to leave the prison. Come on, come out of the jail, please. And then begged them to leave town. And Paul apparently agreed to do so. But first he wanted to go to Lydia's house where the brethren had gathered in worship. Apparently the community of believers had grown. It was now a church that met in Lydia's home. When he got there, the text says they encouraged them. Now, who encouraged whom? It could be either way. And no doubt mutual encouragement took place. But I'm convinced it was primarily Paul and Silas encouraging the church. They encouraged them and let them see how God vindicates his servants and delivers them when it serves his purposes to do so. To have left secretly would have been very hard on the new believers. It would have looked like defeat. But God wasn't able to act in the case of the misuse of authority. But now Paul and Silas could live victoriously. And the church was surely encouraged by that. Now apparently Luke stayed behind to minister further with the young church because that's the end of the we sections we mentioned last week until Paul returns to Philippi in chapter 20. The we section written by Luke means he was there. Now he's not going to be there. He's going to be there again. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were able to leave, confident that God had done a good work through them in Philippi. Now, it's true they had been beaten and imprisoned, but the end result was that God had been glorified. His power to release those who have been imprisoned had been witnessed. The jailer and his household had been released from their sins. And Paul and Silas had been released from dishonor. God had brought release in Philippi. And he promises to do the same today. If we place our trust in him and express our faith in him by obeying him, He will release us from whatever is holding us captive. Kent made that very clear last Sunday night. Whatever is holding you captive, 
who'll be deemed powerless in the face of an almighty God. He will release you from whatever has entrapped you and imprisoned you if you will ask him to do so. And you'll trust him to do so. And you'll obey him by doing what he tells you to do, to be released. All he asks is that we trust him. And then let him save us.